Well, hello, church family. It is good to sing together. Thank you for being a church family that sings. Take your Bibles and find your way to the book of First John. As you're turning there, I just want to kind of give a word of thanks to our children's ministry workers. I know that some of them are serving right now. They won't hear this, uh, but some of you have already served and been really flexible with us as we've adjusted to the various schedules that we've undertaken during this time. But I'm just thankful for uh, the faithfulness of this church family to uh, seek to do good to our children, whether it's in nursery or whether it's uh, in our children's classes. So thankful for them and uh, prayerful that the Lord would be pleased to use their efforts this morning uh, as they teach young children. While we are up here, we get to enjoy looking more into First John uh, in our expository sermon series. Uh, we find our, ourselves at the end of chapter 2, and we'll be looking into the first few verses of chapter 3. Have you ever finished some difficult task or completed some hard endeavor, in part because of the encouragement uh, that you found from others? I was thinking of a race that I had run, and I remember feeling worn out. The miles had added up. The pain was intensifying. I remember distinctly entering this section of the race, and uh, it was loud. There were people lining both sides of the road, and they were shouting and screaming and waving signs. They were strangers to me, but they helped me. Their enthusiasm, the energy that they had, helped me find some hidden resources to press on and finish the race. Some of you have a story like that yourselves. Maybe not in a race, but some other endeavor. Maybe it's some sort of schooling endeavor. Uh, where you've been working hard and the encouragement of somebody else really was what helped you finish well. Our next section in John's letter functions kind of like that. John is writing to encourage and strengthen his readers to press on in the Christian faith. He's writing to reassure them of their uh, condition as children of God as they live out a Christian faith in a pagan world. As we begin this next section of 1 John, I'd like to orient us to where we find ourselves in John's flow. And so we can understand uh, what he's getting at here in the end of chapter 2. John wants his readers to remain faithful. He wants to encourage them. He wants to have them to keep following Jesus, which is why he tells them in verse 28, And now, little children, abide in him. That's the exhortation. Abide in Christ. And so this, the word him there is a reference there to Jesus uh, in fact, I had a conversation after the first service where we were uh, discussing, is it God the Father or Jesus, the hymns that are referring there? And it's kind of both. It flips back and forth. But in that specific verse, in verse 28, and now little children abide in him, that is a reference to Christ. And the idea of abiding in Christ, uh, we can summarize it by understanding it means to live in accord with and in conscious awareness of our identity as followers of Jesus. And so I'm going to be using that phrase, follow Jesus, be faithful uh, uh, to Christ, abide in him, synonymously as we go through this section of First John together. John gives this exhortation to abide because some had not. Uh, if you look back in, earlier in chapter 2, back in verse 19, uh, he writes about some who had previously called themselves Christians, but they were no longer abiding. They had stopped following Jesus. In verse 19 of chapter 2, it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That's an apostolic explanation of what had happened in that Christian community. Some had defected from the Christian faith. They had stopped abiding. They had abandoned the Christian faith. And I imagine that Christian community was shaken by this, wondering and worried and concerned about who would be next or would it be them and how could they have reassurance that they truly are children of God. And so, 
They needed some spiritual uh, uh, encouragement. They needed some spiritual reassurance. And that's what John sets out to do in this section. How does he do that? Well, in the previous section, when we looked at last week, if you remember back in verse 18, uh, John warns them, he reminds them, tells them that there is Antichrist coming. Now, in this section, verse 28, he encourages his readers with, Jesus is coming. So I believe that John's goal in this section is to give his readers spiritual reassurance and encouragement to keep following Jesus, to keep abiding. That's what he wants them to continue on, to have encouragement that they truly are children of God, to abide. It's like he's standing alongside the road, right? As Christians are running by on this race of the Christian faith and he's cheering them on to continue to do that. That's what we have for us here in this text. They're worn out, they're weary, they're worried. What is the word that will be life-giving to them? What's going to encourage them and us to continue to abide? We're going to look at this in two simple points, two simple uh, phrases. Keep following Jesus. Abide because Jesus is coming back. And number two, keep following Jesus or abide because you are born of God. That's the simple outline that we'll use to work through this text today. Number one, follow Jesus or abide because Jesus is returning. He's reminding his readers of a fact. Jesus is coming back. But there's more going on here than just simply calling to their memory some religious fact, some doctrinal truth. What he's doing here is he is emphasizing the Christian's personal relationship with Christ. Jesus is coming back. Yes, that's true. And because they know Jesus... Because they abide in him, he wants them to continue that so that they have confidence in his return. He wants them to appreciate the personal relationship that they have with Christ and let that be an encouragement, an inspiration to carry on in the faith. And we know that because of the, uh, how many times the words he, him, and his are repeated in this section of Scripture. In just these five verses, go ahead and glance through it. By my count, I see those personal pronouns, he, him, his, all referring to Jesus or God, 13 times in just these five verses. And so John's emphasis is to call to their minds, not just the truth, the doctrinal knowledge that Jesus is returning, but this matters because they know him. They know Jesus. They are of the Father. And because he's returning and they know him, he wants their personal relationship with Jesus to be what encourages and inspires them on. It's like if a spouse were to get deployed overseas um, for some sort of military service. The spouse that remains behind if, if they're remaining faithful to the family, when their soldier returns, they're going to be filled with confidence. But if they're not faithful to their family, when their soldier returns, they will be filled with shame. And that's what John is writing about. He says, And now, little children, verse 28, abide in him. What's the reason? So that when he, when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There are two responses that we might have in, uh, to Jesus' return. Those two responses are having confidence, verse 28, or shrinking away from him when he returns. Which response you will have is determined by the nature of your relationship with Jesus. Jesus' return is good news when you've experienced the forgiveness of sin and when you have received him as God's gift of a Savior to you. Then when a Savior returns, that's a joyful thing. But if he is not your savior, he will be a righteous judge. And because of that, the nature of your relationship changes how your response will be when he returns. You will not respond with joy because this religious man of good teaching has come back. No, he is a man who is, he's described in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, he is a righteous judge. 
And now your response would be, if you do not know Jesus like this, your response will be that of shame. This is the central message of Christianity, how sinners can have a response of joyful confidence in the face of a returning righteous Savior. And so following Jesus matters. Following Jesus now matters. Because it matters one day what your response will be when Jesus returns. And John wants his readers to experience this confidence, so he exhorts them to continue abiding, to remain faithful. Do you know Jesus like that? Is your relationship with Jesus more than just a religious teacher who said many good things and you kind of are just kind of getting carried along in this religious experience? Or do you know Jesus as your Savior, the one who has redeemed your soul from the slavery of sin and brought you back into right relationship with God? You could think of it like the Coast Guard. You might be swept out at sea uh, by, by a riptide or maybe your boat capsized, whatever story you'd like to use. Just imagine you're out at sea alone and you see a Coast Guard cutter motoring up to you. You would be thrilled. You'd be full of joy at seeing the ones that will save you as your Savior. But if you were smuggling drugs and trying to cross some sort of ocean and you saw a Coast Guard cutter, then you would not be full of joy or confidence, right? I'm not accusing anybody in here of being a drug smuggler, but you understand that the nature of our relationship with, the one, with that person determines our response. And John is highlighting for these people to encourage them to continue to abide the nature of their relationship with Jesus. You know him. He's coming back. We want you to be ready for joyful confidence when that day happens. So what are we to do then as Christians? Abide. Continue. Some haven't, but you must Following Jesus now matters. Because Jesus is righteous and we are not, it is a wonderful thing that we have his righteousness. That's what he's pointing out to them. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, the wording there is a little bit of a puzzler to us uh, because we use the word if when we are uncertain about something. You know, this is going to happen if, and then it's something that's uncertain. John's wording here is not uncertain we could understand it like this, since you know that he is righteous. That's the effect that John's wording is supposed to have. For, that's how it would have been for his original readers. They would have understood it as a, as a certainty. Since you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Again, he's highlighting their, the nature of their relationship with Jesus. They know him. They know what kind of person he is. He is righteous. This um, section that describes being born of him is very important. It really serves as kind of a doctrinal center of this section and, of course, the whole book as a whole because one of the major questions that John is trying to give assurance to his readers is that they know that they have eternal life. Another way of saying that is that people would know that they are born of God. That's what he's getting at here in the end of verse 29. He's highlighting this idea of being born of God. Now, I want to make sure that none of us misread verse 29 and think that because there's, there's a connection here between being born of God and practicing righteousness, behaving righteously. I want to make sure we don't get a confusion there and wrongfully understand the relationship between being born of God and living righteously. In other words, we do not become children of God by doing a lot of righteous things. That's not the message of Christianity. That's not what John is saying here. Spiritual birth is what causes righteous actions. That's what he's saying here. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure then that everyone who practices righteousness, what? Has been born of him. 
uh, you could summarize it with a simple phrase that's often used like father, like son type of an idea. If God is your father, then you as his child are going to exhibit, you're going to express attributes that are consistent with who your father is. Spiritual birth is what causes righteous actions. That's why a life characterized by righteous actions is evidence, not the cause. It's the evidence of being born of God. John wants a desire for confidence in Jesus' return to inspire his readers to live a life like Jesus. And what was Jesus' life like? He was righteous. Now, I don't know how you initially react to uh, a call to righteous living. You might be thinking, here we are, a cliche church experience, right? Show up, pastor starts preaching God's word, and he tells us to live righteously. It sounds so old-fashioned. Maybe you start to feel a burden or an obligation, right, when the word righteous comes up in relationship to your life. But if you're a Christian, you don't need to feel that obligation. You don't need to feel that type of burden, that oppression. Righteous living for a Christian is not an obligation, according to John here. Righteous living for a Christian is a result of being born of God. And that should fill your hearts with hope then. I know there's probably some objections because you may be thinking, hang on, uh, my Christian experience is full of struggle and challenge and I have to keep putting sin to death. And it sounds like what John's writing about here is different. But hang on, right? Righteous living, according to John, is a result and an evidence of being born of God. That should fill every Christian's heart here with hope. If you've been born of God, you will practice righteousness. You will This isn't something that you must muster up strength from some resource in and of yourself. This isn't a self-help strategy. This is recognizing, John wants them to recognize who they are by identity. You're born of God. And you can be sure, he says, that everyone who practices righteousness, that has a life characterized by righteousness, has been born of God. Christians are born of God to practice righteousness. Paul writes about it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, which is another passage that talks about the radical transformation that happens in someone's life as a result of this new birth that the, script, that the scriptures call being a Christian. Paul writes about it this way, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus is the way Paul writes what John says, being born of God. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Paul's use of four good works there is analogous to what John is writing about practicing righteousness. Same message. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, there is this tight relationship then between who we are as Christians and how we behave then as, as children of God. I want to put that on our map here, okay, mentally, so we recognize what's coming. But in the next three verses, John begins to develop some of the implications of what it means to be born of God. He wants his readers to more deeply appreciate what this includes. And that leads us to our second point. Not only just abide in Jesus because he's returning, but number two, keep following Jesus. Abide. Why? Because you're born of God. This really is the central truth that he wants for us to meditate on. These three verses is, are a big help to us. Instead of just rushing past this concept of being born of God, which we might be tempted to do, John wants his readers to slow down, take a few moments, and give some thoughtful reflection to the implications of this doctrinal truth. So see verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. The word see here is an exclamation. You could put an exclamation mark after it, right? Uh, To get the, the effect 
Uh, this is uh, like John saying, look, I want you to take notice of this. I was trying to think of an illustration of an exclamation like this, and what came to mind was uh, when our family, we were driving back from a backpacking trip, and my wife, Shannon, saw a bald eagle. And she yelled in the car, look, there's a bald eagle. And she wanted all of us to turn our gaze to see what she was seeing so that we could enjoy that same sight. That's what John is doing here. He wants us to look, to take note, to put our gaze somewhere. And what he wants us to look at is God's love. Look, look. I love John's strategy here. His aim is to encourage and give his readers assurance of eternal life And he does so by inviting us to pause and look at God's love. And I also want us to understand the relationship, the connection that John is putting here between God's love, a reminder to look at God's love with a practical application that he just gave to live righteously. You notice that? End of verse 29, he says, listen, there's going to be an evidence that you're a child, that you're born of God by this. You're going to be practicing righteousness. Your life will be characterized like that. And then the next words that he talks about are God's love. And I'm highlighting that connection for this reason, because I wonder if sometimes we can be tricked into thinking, wrongly thinking, that the ethical expectations of the gospel, of the Christian life, are unloving of God. And it shouldn't surprise us when we start to think that way, because we live in a world that is promoting and presenting this idea of love as um, unlimited, unhindered self-expression, pursuit of personal joy and fulfillment. That's our world's definition of love. If you have self-love, you'll pursue whatever your heart's desire. And that's the idea then that's constantly being taught to us. So it's no surprise then when we start to become, you know, know, having the impression of that idea pushed into our souls. But our world is selling a definition of love that is not biblical. That idea of love is devilish. The world promotes that distorted, twisted self-love. But God is presenting to us a much different kind of love. And that's what John wants his readers to look at. Look, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So what John wants wants us to look at is God's love. What does God's love look like? It looks like a holy God making sinners his children. It looks like the gospel, the central message of what Christianity is. It's amazing. It's the story of how a holy God is reconciling sinners back into right relationship with himself through the life-giving sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. God loves us. How do we know that? Because we are called children of God. Why is that? Because of God's love. It's difficult to try to come up with a an illustration that captures the immensity of this expression, this reality of love. It's difficult for us to do that because in every example of hostility or enmity we have in in our world system here, it's insufficient to describe the immensity of the hostility that exists between sinners and a holy God. We sometimes forget that. God is not just kind of a good version of us. He is... Jehovah Almighty, holy. But you could try to maybe think of a story of genocide that has happened in our world where you have one tribe that is eradicating another group of people through malicious murder, genocide. And imagine that you have one person from each of those tribes and they've been 
under genocide from another tribe, and that tribe then takes in someone who is wounded from the other and helps them and cares for their wounds and provides for healing and then provides for their needs and establishes them and provides for their education and trains them and supports them as they go through the job job training and adopts them into their own family and sets them up to be the, the inheritor, the heir of their wealth, of their estate. We would marvel at something like that, but God has done something more. This is why John is saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. This is the message of the gospel. And it leads us to what I think is probably the best phrase of this entire section, although we've already looked at some good stuff, right? The next few words, you see it? See what kind of love the Father has given to us in chapter 3, verse 1, that we should be called children of God. Here it is. And so we are. These simple words give so much confidence and life-giving endurance to God's people. I love the realism here, right? John's readers and John himself know how tumultuous the Christian life can be. I mean, there might be some who try to delude themselves into thinking that they're really righteous. You know, look at all the things that I'm doing. I'm not sinful anymore. I'm not a sinner. And John calls them out and calls them. If that's you, you're a liar, right? Chapter 1, verse 8. If, this, if you think you're without sin, you're a liar. Okay, so we have, we're, we're sinful. But at the same time, he's not giving room for people to say, hey, I'm saved by grace you know, alone, and so my sinful life doesn't matter at all. I can just live however I please. No, no, no. He's saying an evidence of being a true child of God is that you're going to be doing war against sin. You're going to have a life characterized by practicing righteousness. And so what he does here is he puts the emphasis not on something that's going to happen in the future, that you'll be the child of God, but he reminds them of who they are right now. You are a child of God now. I'm going to, how are we going to make sense of this? So I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 1, and then chapter 3, verse 2, but I'm going to skip the last part of verse 1 so we can get the flow of how John is putting the emphasis on this present reality. He wants this reality to grip his readers. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The emphasis in these words are on this present tense reality. This is something that is happening now. This is who you are now. So Christians don't fight against sin to become God's children. Christians fight against sin because we are God's children. We step forward in faith. We follow Jesus in the life he calls us to, not to become a child of God, but because we have been born of God. And that order is essential. It's very important. You cannot reverse reverse engineer yourself into becoming a Christian as if you, well, if I just behave like a Christian, then I guess I am a Christian. No. You become a child of God through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. God changes you. He makes you new, it says in the Scriptures. So therefore, then, you have a new heart that's aligned to him in ways that always eluded you before that saving work of God. So now what? You have a disposition that is drawn by the power of God's Spirit to do what? To practice righteousness. Now, he says that this is who we are. We're children of God now. This is the present reality. There's probably many applications that could be made out of that truth, but here's one that I think will be an encouragement to this church family in this day. Go ahead and think about your local church family right here, Highlands Baptist Church. Think about names and faces. Think about them. Don't say them out loud. If you need help, look around, okay? 
kind of glance through in your mind's eye, the church directory. Think of those that you love easily, that you enjoy easily, that are just kind of a blessing, that encourage you often. Praise God for them, right? Oh, what a gift of God's grace to you, right? Now I want you to think about those that aren't like that. And just remember, there's, you're one of those people in somebody else's mind. Okay? I want us to remember that we are all children of God. That's who we are now. We are children of God. You might say, hang on, now it sounds like you want me to excuse away all the imperfections and sinful tendencies and inconsistencies and immaturities of brother, sister, so-and-so. That is not what I'm asking you to do. That's not what John is asking you to do. What John is asking us to do is to see one another, see our genuine needs for spiritual growth and maturity through the lens of this. We are God's children now. And friends, that, I hope, gives us enormous hope for one another. John admits, right, even though we are now God's children, what we will be has not yet appeared. And we can all say, yes, we agree with that. We understand that. Our, we look in the mirror and we say, boy, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. We can look at one another and we remind each other regularly, like any family does, that we have great needs for, a, for the transforming work of God's power being done through us. And that's where he goes to in verse 2, right? He says, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There is truth in all of that that I don't understand. There's aspects to it that I, I don't, don't have the intricacies of how this functions or works or will be affected in, in Christians, but we do know that this will happen. What is going to happen is something radical, something profound is going to occur in Christians when we see him. This process of becoming like Christ more and more has started as soon as you become a child of God. And he's transforming you incrementally, you know, you know little, by little by little that is happening. But something is going to be completed when we see Christ. And it seems that what's happening now, little by little, John is reminding us of this glorious, hopeful future that is ours because we are born of God. The Apostle Paul writes about this incremental change that happens in our lives as Christians like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord that's seeing this love of God Christ seeing Christ beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another he's describing that incremental change that is happening we can lose sight of that right sometimes it feels like one step forward two steps backwards with ourselves let alone with others that we're trying to help follow Jesus Right? I mean, you've been exasperated with other Christians before, right? And what John is pointing our hearts to, our minds to, he's pointing his readers to here to assure them to abide is this grand vision of what God will make of us in that final day of days. And we've seen a glimpse of it in him. It's astonishing how all-encompassing these words are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Now, this doesn't mean that you become deity, but it means that you, you model, you uh, like father, like son, in that sense of deity, in that we will have a sin-free, resurrected body that is prepared and ready to live for all eternity with God, to enjoy him forever. We will have 
an inner person, the soul, this inner person of mind and heart, will and affections that abides in God and Christ perfectly with no internal traitor or any sinful tendencies that are tugging at our mind or our consciences that are trying to pull our affections away from being fully satisfied in him. Just imagine how different you would be if that's, that was the description of you. Just imagine how different we all would be if that's the full, complete description of all of us. That's the end that is in mind for us as God's people. It's glorious. And he's reminding his readers of that's who you are. And so it's really these simple words, and so we are, offer a Christian family deep wells of grace and understanding towards one another and it and an uh, unrelenting optimism about the days ahead for us, about the changes that God intends for us. They're good. Painful, difficult, yes, but good and glorious. Just like a parent needs to endlessly instruct and forgive and correct and encourage a child as they grow and mature, so we're going to need to do that with one another. But we do it all the while with this understanding. We are born of God. We are children of God. We are that now. I wonder how powerful it would be if this church family made it a habit even more and more of reminding each other of that glorious truth. I mean, sure, we can be frustrated and irritated at that inconsistency, that disappointment that is a result of sin yet in our brother or sister in Christ, but all the while, let's keep the vision that John is putting before his readers. You are a child of God now. I wonder how our relationships might change I wonder if we could imagine that of one another. Husbands imagining that of their, of their wives and wives imagining this glorious outcome for their husband and parents for their children and church members for one another. And let that be the motivation and the inspiration for us as we keep encouraging each other to follow Jesus. It's not easy following Jesus, though, is it? <laughs> it's tough. It's challenging. And John admits that. And that's the path, that's the phrase that I skipped over so we could get the flow of how wonderful it is that we are children of God. He says this, the reason why, this is the last part of, of verse 1 of chapter 3, 3 verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So it's interesting. John is writing about your children of God. Look at God's love he's given to you. You're, you're God's child. And then in the middle of that, he inserts this explanation of why the world does not know us, why the world thinks we're crazy, Christians are, are crazy. And then he goes right back to, beloved, you're God's children right now. Why has he inserted that phrase there? I think it's because John is explaining that it's okay when a Christian feels out of touch with the rest of the world around them. Living a righteous life confounds the world. When you just think about it logically, it, it's a puzzler because... We all want to be around people that are full of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness, right? I mean, that's like giving me lots of those kinds of neighbors, right? But yet our world responds so hostily towards people that are characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, and goodness that is flowing out of this relationship with God. And so you can imagine the strain and the stress that is on a church family that has experienced some that have call themselves Christians and then defected from the faith and they're trying to discern and be reassured, are we truly children of God? And John is writing to reassure them. He gives them this doctrinal truth. He points their, their, their focus uh, on the love that they have from God and Jesus. And then he reminds them, listen, this is the reason you should expect this, that you will not be treated any better than your Savior was. 
Jesus lived perfectly in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness. He lived that perfectly, entirely consistently. He never had a slip-up in it once. And that they responded to him hostily. Because he came as a king. And when we're enslaved to our sin, we don't want a different king. We want to be our own king. And so... This explanation is meant to assure his readers that even though they feel like they don't fit in and the world is against them, it's okay. Because they know who their tribe is, if I can use those ideas. They know who they're people of. They are not of this world. They are what? Born of God. Teenager, young adult, young professional, career person, wherever segment of life you're in, you're going to feel the pressures of this world being exerted on your psyche so that you're going to feel the temptation to just want to fit in, just to be accepted. Friends, abide. We can go back to verse 28, and now little children, abide in him. It's good for Christians to be reminded that we are going to be the weirdos in this world age, in this present age. We're not going to be the ones that are going to fit in. The reason the world doesn't do that, doesn't understand us, is because they don't understand our Father. Which, by the way, maybe there's another practical application there. Um, there are ways to be winsomely Christian and unwinsomely Christian. Let's make sure that the, way, the reason people in our world don't understand us is not because we are willfully being jerks. Okay, does that make sense? But it's because we are, we are practicing righteousness and demonstrating that we are people of God. We are children of God, born of Him. Um, this pressure of worldliness, right, it fits all in with his, his explanation that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. I mean, earlier he's talked about don't love the world, right? Because the love of the Father is not in you. There's this expectation of the transformation that's going to be evident in a true child of God. But sometimes we might feel ourselves as if um, the mockery and the scoffing of the world is just too much of a burden to bear. Um, If John's words fall flat on you, maybe a non-religious author's words would kind of reverse, you can't reverse engineer an encouragement, right? Uh, maybe coming at it from that angle would kind of open our eyes. Teenager, young adult, whatever your need is of the reality of, of how important it is that we live in accord with the gospel. Uh, as I was studying this, I came across an article that was published by The Spectator magazine by a self-confessed non-religious author. He said it like this, I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following... I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. That's just a non-religious author saying, in different words, the emphasis that John is pointing out here to his readers. So then, what are we to do with all this truth? How does John summarize this for his readers? Well, look at verse 3 of chapter 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The confident expectation of seeing Jesus and being like Jesus and knowing that you're born of God as a child, as a, as a brother of, of, of Jesus in the sense of a child of God means that it'll, it motivates God's people to pursue a life of purity because we've been born of God who is pure. Again, this close connection between you're born of God, you practice righteousness, you know you're born of God, you're going to be pursuing purity. It reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed or happy, joyful are the pure in heart. Why? 
for they shall see God. Too often our world is, and we can become just carried along with the flow of it. We're, we're living for personal fulfillment, joy, and happiness. But Christians, we of all people are enabled to experience that in God, in Christ. Our world is offering us a life to pursue personal pleasures and happiness and fulfillment, no matter the cost. And yet God has come in love with his gift of his Son to redeem us from a life of sin so that we can enjoy him forever. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Again, what Christians need most in this age is not self-help, sense of self-help strategies. What we need are fresh visions of Jesus, of his love. That God has come to redeem us. And that redemption is not just something that happened in the past and now he forgets about us, but no, he's preparing us for, a, for an eternity of enjoying him forever. And so I wonder if God is bringing conviction into our hearts, revealing where we must turn away from a life that has kind of treated righteous living casually as if it's just kind of, well, maybe I'll get around to it. And those, yeah, maybe. It's not a big deal. I go to church, you know. I know John 3.16. I pray before I eat. But no, in a, in, a, in a genuine way where our hearts are captured with this fresh vision of see what kind of love God has for us. That we should be called children of God. And then as we scatter through this week, I wonder if some of us need to return to awareness of the importance of living righteously, of the importance of pursuing purity. Not out of a sense of living up to a law or obligation, but being so overwhelmed with, with, with an awareness of God's love that we are inspired and energized to live in a way that is in accord with the one who loves us. I wonder if some of us just need to reflect on the love of God. I know love is a popular theme, right? It's never out of, it's never, it never grows old, right? I mean, how long have, has humankind been writing songs about love? Christians, we have the greatest love imaginable. And that is what John wants his readers to understand, to be a motivation for them to continue to abide. Maybe this vision of God's love, this endless hope in who we are and what we're going to be together, will change how we relate to one another as a church family. Maybe it will strengthen you to keep doing good. Maybe it will embolden you to do good in specific ways of encouraging your Christian family members of who they are, of reminding them of what love they've experienced. 